Then notice we have an insult, an insult in verse 9. It says, And they said, Stand back. And they said, Again, this one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will need to be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them? And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. Notice here this, uh, this insult. Compromise neutralizes a testimony. Lot had no platform in t- of integrity from which to launch an attack upon the immorality that was gathered at his door. He is recognized as being one who sojourned in, in Sodom. He was not a product of Sodom, but he chose to live there. You know, a compromiser cannot be a judge. It's important to notice here that Lot is threatened with violence. And homosexuality is really an extremely violent sin. It is not a caring relationship that just happens to be outside of God's order. It's a wicked, perverted, and ultimately violent lifestyle. These men are enraged with satanic desire, so much so that they begin to assault the door. They're going to break his door down. And then notice here an intervention in verse 10 and 11. An intervention. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. The angels come to Lot's rescue from these men of the city and from Lot's own foolishness. The men in the street who were afflicted with terrible moral blindness now were stricken with physical blindness. Now, the rare word for blindness probably indicates a dazzled state, kind of like Saul was on the Damascus Road, but the word occurs later in in 2 Kings as well in the context of angels. But the judgment here is very appropriate. The context indicates that even in the face of blindness, these wicked men are still trying to find that door with a view of forcing themselves upon Lot's guest. The blindness was not even going to stop them. So you here you have in this first section the witnesses. Next, let's go on to the warning. Verses 12 through 22, the warning. By the way, all of those, and this doesn't always mean anything in particular, but I thought it was interesting that I came, were able, was come, able to come up with words that started with I, because I think Lot had an I problem. And then the men at the end had an eye problem. They were blinded by these angels. Well, all of the words that we're going to use in the second part here start with P. Don't uh, try to figure out what that means, but uh, whether it means anything. But uh, here we have the warning. First, the probe. The probe, verse 12. And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides son-in-law and thy sons and thy daughters, And whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out of this place. Here the language of this verse seems to justify Abraham stopping in his intercession at number 10. You remember the prayer that uh, 
uh, or the, uh, the asking that uh, Abraham did in the last part of chapter 18. And he said, started out with 50, then 40, then 30, and then he ended up with 10. Whatever persons or possessions that can be saved must be gathered quickly here. Uh, and while there is little time to do so, Lot must make an inventory particularly of those people who are important to him. He must make every effort to bring them out of this place, as it says there in, chapter, in verse 12. Secondly, notice the power, verse 13. For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. The angels disclose their purpose for coming and the source of the decision to destroy the city. God has decreed that this sinful place must be purged. And the word destroyed here in verse 13 is the same that's used in reference to the flood back in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. Notice thirdly the petition, verse 14. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place. For the Lord will destroy the city, but it seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. Now it's very, very late in the evening, and Lot is urgently seeking out his family, and he's pleading with them to flee the wrath of God. His sons-in-law thought him crazy and would not budge. Lot had lost his testimony, and even this petition of of trying to get them to leave, they were not going to listen to him because his t testimony was already ruined. He lost his testimony with those to whom he ought to have uh, had that testimony count the most. And that's always true in our families. We need to have a testimony uh, of, before our families that honors the Lord. When we lose our testimony before our family, we are in big trouble. It's tragic when believers lose their testimony with their own family. And no believer ought to expect that his family would suddenly be impressed with an urgent message, which is different from the message of his life conveyed up to that point. You know, if we're not living for the Lord, and then all of a sudden we get to, well, we got to get, we got to get serious about this, don't expect them to listen if that's not what you've been living. Thank God for every believer who gets right with God, but do not expect others to take him seriously. The power of an inconsistent testimony to reduce the credibility of truth is very significant. Now notice uh, the next two verses, verses 15 and 16, the proximity, the proximity. In verse 15 it says, And when the morning arose, when the angels hastened, Lot saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold on, upon his hands and laid a hold upon his wife, hand upon his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. In verse 15, these two visitors we called angels. In verse 16, uh, in, in verse 15, they're called angels. In verse 16, they're called men. Both designations apply, one covering what they in reality were, 
and the other how they actually appeared. We'll go down to verse 23 a little bit later, but it'll indicate that it's now very early in the morning. Before the sun had actually risen above the horizon. And judgment is imminent, and the time to escape that judgment is short. In spite of the danger, Lot still hesitates. Lot's affection for the things of this world is all too typical of our generation's materialism. One is reminded of the very tragic discoveries uh, of Pompeii. You remember in history when uh, Pompeii uh, was covered with the ash and the lava of the volcano, that they found people later uh, 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 hanging on to their treasures, their objects uh, in their hands. God is merciful, though. Lot deserves to die in Sodom, but God kept him. Yet it is presumptuous to linger in the face of mercy. It's a shame that one so kindly warned must be forcibly ejected from the city. Notice the next verse, verse 17, the plea, the plea. And it came to pass when they had brought him forth abroad and that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. I think the instructions are very simple. Flee and forsake. Flee and forsake. Lot must leave all the value of Sodom as far as earthly goods are concerned. He's to leave the vicinity completely. The well-watered plain of Sodom is about to become a wasteland. The mountains immediately to the east would have offered necessary shelter from the destruction about to be unleashed. And it's significant here that the instruction includes a flee or perish element. Lot is specifically instructed not to look backward. And that's very important for later developments in this chapter, of course. From the standpoint of principle, though, God never wants His children to look back at the place where they have been delivered from. There must be no reserved place in our heart for the past. Notice verse 18 through 20, the persistence, the persistence. And Lot said unto them, O, not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life, and I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil take me, and I die. Behold, now this city is near to flee unto you, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. It's amazing just how presumptuous a carnal man can be. Lot has not only lost his testimony here, He's lost his ability to trust God to supply for him. How strange that God would deliver from Sodom. A God who would deliver him from Sodom could not be trusted to provide in the mountain as well. It was Lot's weakness to think a city of his own choosing was safer than the mountains that God had appointed to him. Lot had become so accustomed to depending upon the flesh He had forgotten how to trust God. Operating in the flesh produces severely debilitating results spiritually. Now notice verse 19 again. Some important words there. Note God's God's grace and mercy. Grace is a very important word that embraces both emotion and action. 
mercy, and this is the first of 11 occurrences of this word in Genesis. And Lot can only think of himself. Here we perceive Lot's constant appeal to self-interest, selfishness clung to this man's very soul. It almost, uh, it almost wearies us and our patience to just to think how this long-winded plea at the moment of extreme danger. One would think that Lot would have had the spiritual sense to request a return to Hebron, maybe, to Abraham. Surely he, he would have known that Abraham, a godly man, was not under the sentence of judgment, especially since the cities of the plain were described as the sole target of God's judgment. Well, then we come to verse 21 and 22, and we see the prayer. The prayer. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for that which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou come thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. Lot's prayer was heard, and the little city of Zorah is spared. But notice the angel does not say that he will not, but he cannot do anything as long as Lot is in the vicinity. And that principle goes back to Genesis chapter 18. Go back to Genesis 18 real quickly and look at verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? In verse 25, That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee, shall not the judge of the earth do right? You see, God will not destroy the righteousness with the wicked, even when the righteous are fully backslidden, as was Lot. Now this does not mean that compromised believers escape other consequences of their foolishness. But the balance of this chapter makes abundantly clear that decisions, choices, have consequences. So notice with me, thirdly, the wrath. And this is verses 23 through 29. The wrath. Notice first the time. Verse 23. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zorro. In the gloom of very early morning, Lot left Sodom and enters Zor shortly after the break of day. That's the time. Notice the type in verse 24. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Now here we see God himself is very active in this judgment. God was present in and with his angels, whom he had delegated to this task, and who acted under specific divine mandate. He who had the day before, uh, before visibly present with them, was now invisibly with them. When his agents acted, he acted. And the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was not a means of just a natural calamity. This just didn't happen naturally. This was a supernatural catastrophe. Brimstone is a type of sulfur, and it's associated with eternal judgment. God literally blasted a hole in the ground where these cities had been. Now, the natural ingredients of destruction were abundant in this region. Uh, this was a region of petroleum and bitumen and salt and sulfur. 
but its character was a judgment, just not a random disaster. Uh, No doubt the location of these cities now lies under the Dead Sea. It appears that God changed this entire topography uh, of this area. But notice verse 25, the totality. The totality. He overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. Everything was destroyed, including the people and the property and the plant life. And to this day, the rocks on the eastern side of the Dead Sea are blackened as though burned with fire. Geologists say that it was volcanic rock. The problem is that there's never been an active volcano in that region. Perhaps the use of this verb will shed light on the exact nature of this catastrophe. That it was a volcanic volcanic eruption seems unlikely. But on the other hand, this verb we're talking about, overthrew. Overthrew in, in this instance means to annihilate. And that would suggest the disastrous effect of an earthquake accompanied by lightning which ignited the natural gases of the Jordan Valley area and produced a terrible inferno. Only something that God could control and could take care of. Notice number, verse 26, the temptation. But his wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Now, what caused Lot's wife to look back? Was it family? Was it friends or material things? Well, the Hebrew includes the element that she looked back from behind him. Now, that suggested that she had separated herself from Lot at that time, perhaps having turned back to see the better, see better the destruction of the city that she loved. And the penalty was immediate, and it was severe, conveying the idea of complete and instantaneous judgment. We must never underestimate the seriousness of disobedience. Verse 27 and 28, And Abraham got up early in the morning in the place where he stood before the Lord, and he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and behold, and lo, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And notice here the trauma. The trauma. Abraham must have been very concerned about Lot. He was up early the next morning at the very place where he made intercession the day before. One look told him that the further intercession was useless. And can you imagine maybe the trauma that worked in his heart at that time, not knowing the whereabouts of Lot and his family? No doubt he wished many times over he had kept interceding beyond the ten for which he'd prayed. We have no indication that God communicated to Abraham the outcome of his prayers, but the reality is we do not have to know how God has answered our prayers. We simply need to trust Him with the answers. Verse 29, the thought, the thought. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. God remembered Lot because God remembered Abraham. Abraham had prayed. God had answered with more than Abraham had prayed for. 
And this is the second time that Abraham rescues Lot. First time he rescued Lot was by the sword, and the second time is by supplication, by prayer. And carnal Lot has in, was indebted to his spiritual uncle that day without even knowing it. Now let's finish the chapter with the wickedness. The wickedness, verses 30 through 38. Notice, first of all, the removal in verse 30. The removal. And Lot went up out of Zorah and dwelt in the mountain and his two daughters with him, and he feared to dwell in Zorah. And he dwelt in a cave, he and his two daughters. Now when a man has no faith with which to be sustained, he has nothing left to, hit, to do but fear. The very place where Lot had feared to go draws him. Fearing to live even in Zorah, uh, he seeks refuge in a cave. What a move. Lot uh, went from riches to poverty in a single day. His safety did not depend upon his locality. The angels had given permission to live in Zorah. And hiding in the cave would not protect him from judgment. Many times we think, well, if I just isolate myself from all uh, from everything, that'll, that'll solve it. Well, there's people that have lived in isolation that they're still materialistic. Seclusion is no substitute for sanctification. The verses which follow accentuate the sad influence of Sodom. Lot was able to take his daughters out of Sodom, but he was unable to take the philosophy of Sodom out of his daughters. Notice verse 31, the remorse. And it came to pass on the morrow that the firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine this night also and go in and lie with him that we may preserve our, the seed of our father. Now he, here we find the Lot's daughters have no remorse for the terrible sin which brought them to their current state of duress. The concern was that they had no man with to who to cohabit. You see, growing up in Sodom had evidently hardened their hearts. These young women had not been barred from husbands. There were men in Zorah. Uh, there were people in the encampment of Abraham. But these young ladies were exceedingly foolish when they decided to have a man at any price. And the price would be far greater than they realized. Notice verse 32, the resolve. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him and he may preserve the seed of our father. Having no experience with faith in God's ability to provide the needs of, the, of life, these two daughters resort to reasoning of pagans. Man left to reason rather than faith generally resorts in folly in attempting to find solutions to the problem. And we know that here incest is a wicked sin. Remember that according to Lot's own testimony, these daughters were morally pure in their bodies. They were, however, obviously polluted in their heart. Notice the reprobation in verse 33. The reprobation, verse 33 through 35. And they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he perceived not that she lay down. Nor when she arose and it came to pass on the morrow. The firstborn said unto the younger, Behold, I lay yesternight with my father. Let us make him drink wine 
this night also and go in and lie with him and they may preserve the seed of our father. And they made their father drink wine that night, that night also and the younger arose and lay with him and he perceived not that she lay down nor when she arose. Here's a strong case could be made here against the evils of alcohol. To be overcome so totally, be unaware of, is just human stupidity at its worst. And after this, we never read about Lot anymore, nor what became of him. And from the silence of Scripture concerning him, from this time forward, we may learn that from drunkenness, as it makes men forgetful, it makes them also forgotten. And many a name, which otherwise might have been remembered with respect, has been buried in contempt. The reprobation of Lot's daughters must be attributed to their being brought up in a state of surrender to the wickedness of Sodom. It's so much easier to get a person out of the world than to get the world out of a person. Sin breeds sin. No one is a sinner because of his environment, but his environment can certainly provide an opportunity and a motive for the fallen nature to manifest itself. And so we come to the result. The result. Verse 36. Thus were both daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab, and the name is the father of the Moabites unto this day. And the younger, she also bare a son and called his name Ben-Ammi. And the same is the father of children of, the Ammon, of Ammon unto this day. True to form, sin always produces fruit. And Lot's daughters were unashamed. The names they gave their sons immortalized their parenthood. The name Moab means from the father. Ben-Namai means son of my people. Is there no shame? True to their parentage, the Moabites and the Ammonites were perpetually the enemies of the people of God because they were the enemies of God. And so the example set here by unfaithful parents has a profound effect upon their children. As a result, Moab and Ammon were born. And from Moab, Moab and Ammon sprang two nations who became the bitter, most bitter and persistent enemies of the people of God. The Moabites settled down and became entrenched, hostile neighbors of Israel. The Ammonites, restless, nomadic wanderers, for the most part, they ever sought opportunity to side with Israel's foes. Well, we come to the conclusion of our message here in this particular chapter and the point of our message, and I believe as we've gone through this, I trust you can see that there we have here an account of the failure of a father in particular. Lot's wife was not innocent. Lot's daughters were not innocent. They could have, been, uh, they could have made better and different choices. But, and God directed choices. They could have done that through His Word. But sadly, because of the bad leadership of the father, the family falls into sin and has no testimony for the Lord. It's a failure. It's a failure. Uh, failure to have family devotions. 
to attend church faithfully. Just have families in the place of God's blessing. I think that's one of the, the most important things that a father can do, is have your children in the place of God's blessing. Again, this is seen all over Christianity today. Fathers and mothers who will not surrender to the Lord's will, they will not live according to the word of God, and then they wonder why their children are not serving the Lord. Do the children have a responsibility for, before the Lord? They certainly do. But when they're properly led by godly parents, those choices, more often than not, honor the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is not just another story in a storybook about a, a man who made some bad choices. But Lord, there are principles here for us to pay attention to for our lives even today. And Lord, I pray for our families of our church. I pray that they would be strong in the Lord. They would stay uh, true to the Word of God. They will make right choices. And Lord, I pray that our young people will uh, also be aware of the choices that they make and the effect and the results that can happen as a result of bad choices, of wrong choices. Lord, we pray that you'll help us and strengthen us, that we see don't see Lot's family repeated over and over and over again in the lives of Christian uh, families. But Lord, we pray for families to be strong in the Lord. Lord, may the Word of God speak to our hearts tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.